part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to be doing 3 and 4, kind of finishing out Malachi this morning. If you didn't know, my grandson is here uh, and everything within me, once, if you've seen Lion King, the first Lion King, I, I really am so tempted to grab him and just kind of hold him there, you know, but I'm fighting that urge there, but uh, what a joy. Uh, yesterday, Elliot, our granddaughter up in North Carolina, uh, had a birthday party and we weren't able to be there, but uh, uh, what a blessing, what a blessing, so... Quick question, okay? You gotta raise your hand to one of these two things, okay? Um, are you, glasses. I'm gonna have to run in there and get my glasses. Carly, can you go to, I'm not gonna wear your glasses, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, can you go get theirs? I actually thought that I had brought those and I just noticed that I did not. And uh, unless you want me to stand up here, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna need those to, to navigate this. How many of you are emotionally based between emotional base and logically based, and, and I realize that some people can say, well, you know, I'm the perfect combination of both of those. I'm 50-50. But if you had to decide one way or the other, how many of you would say this morning that you are more emotionally based than you are logically based? That's just kind of how you operate. So raise your hand if you are more, oh, wow, I would have thought more. I really would have thought more. So am I to assume then how many of you are logically based? That's fantastic. You, you, this will be easier to preach this than I thought because this morning, no, seriously, because it is one of those things you have to kind of come with the logic of where God's coming from because today we're going to talk about the wicked and the righteous. Those are not words that we use a lot anymore. That sounds like kind of old fashioned preaching. And some of you grew up in a church where, you know, kind of the hellfire damnation, that was a weekly thing and, and we heard it a lot. Unfortunately, and I would say that, unfortunately, we don't hear it a lot. Uh, I never purpose to preach anything but what the text is. And that's why we love expository preaching, because it forces us to deal with what God is telling us. And so if you hear a message that says, man, Bobby preaches the same thing over and over and over each week, you know, this gospel thing. It's because the gospel is on every page. It really is. I'm not trying to bend it that way. We're just trying to preach the word, and that's what comes out. And yet what we've seen in Malachi as we've gone through it is that there's some tough subjects there. And so this morning as we come to the end of Malachi, realize the importance that we also come to the end of the Old Testament. Let's not discount that. Now, you might say, well, Bobby, you know, did God really put it in that order? You know, just because the Hebrew Bible was set up that way, the Septuagint was set up that way, that man formed these canons and kind of put things in order, I believe that God was over all of that. I really do. And I think that Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament on purpose. I don't think man just sat around and go, you know, put all these other ones. These are really good. Oh, this one can just fit at the end. God has purposed his word in the order there. And I really believe that it is ordained. And so it's one of those things when we come to the end of Malachi today, we actually come to the end of the Old Testament. And many of you that know some church history know that after Malachi, this prophet speaks for God to the people, the Jewish people, that there's hundreds of years of silence. Now, we know that afterward they didn't know that. So they're just hearing this word from God, and it is a hard 
word. In fact, if you go back, you know, remember that the very first uh, verse of Malachi, Malachi 1.1, it says the oracle. Remember that? Malachi 1.1. Can, can you put that up there on the screen just so that we're familiar with that again? The oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. God has given this prophet a word to share with them. And does anybody remember what the word oracle means? There's, thank you, man. You know, I could go home right now because as I, so many times a pastor will ask something and people just look, I don't know. And thank you that there was a resounding this burden. Now, why was it a burden? Because it is a hard word. But remember what we said so much in week one and week two, that a hard word is often a good word. Sometimes we have to speak the hard things because we really do love and that we're looking at not the temporary happiness of something, but we're looking at the eventual maturity of something. So when we take that, a hard word in our lives can sometimes be a really good word. And that's Malachi's approach. He's just telling the people of Israel, the Jewish people, God's people, what God has told him to tell them. And as we come to the end, if you uh, did all write in English, you'll remember this in just simple English writing when you had to write a paper. There's three basic parts. And I know it gets, if you're an English teacher in here and you go, well, Bobby, there's actually much more than three parts. I realize that. But in the most uh, most simplistic way of writing a paper, you have an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. Thank you. Yeah. And so if we look at Malachi from that kind of a literary kind of point of view, there was an introduction. This was an introduction. He says, here's a hard word that's going to come. Then we've had the body, and it has been all of these different things that he's touched upon. And basically, seven indictments, charges that God, holy God, brought against his people, the Jewish people. And every time he did that, he did it through love, through grace. He spoke a tough word, and he said, you've done this. And every single time, all seven times, has their response been, God, we confess, we've done wrong, or has it been one of arrogance and disbelief? Arrogance and disbelief. How have we done this? Every single time that God would bring a very legitimate, because he would even base it with facts. He wouldn't say, this is how I feel. He would say, here's how you've done it. Because every time they would come back and say, how have we done this? And he would give them case in point. So that's been the body. Now the conclusion. Where do we go with that? And as we begin to conclude not only this book of Malachi, but we conclude the Old Testament, what we see is kind of a a summarization in one way of all the Old Testament. I'm going to go ahead and give you, not that I'm a three-point guy. If there's three points in there, we kind of look at three points. But I'm going to give you three points this morning. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you right now, okay? Because there's going to be three real truths, realities, three lasting truths, because that's what a conclusion is. An introduction is, here's what I'm about to tell you. Here's kind of the the situation. The body is all the factual data and all that. And then a conclusion to a paper is, okay, here's the reality, these timeless truths that, that kind of proceed out of this. Here's the conclusion that we draw. And as we come to the conclusion of Malachi and we come to the conclusion of the Old Testament, here's three lasting truths that we will see. The reality of a problem, the reality of a judgment that is to come, and the reality that God has a solution. Those are the three things that we will see in the text this morning as we begin to go through there. The reality of a problem, 
The reality of a judgment, the reality of solution. Look at Malachi 3, 13 and 14. Interesting note. You may see this notation if your Bible. Sometimes if you have a study Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, there is no chapter 4. There just kind of continues on with chapter 3. Remember, when people put chapters and verses, man came back and did that later. And that's often very helpful to us. But that, that's not how Malachi wrote this. So when we go to chapter 4 today, actually in the Hebrew Bible, in the Septuagint, in the original writing, it was just kind of a continuation. And they treat it that way. But let's, let's go back, Malachi 3, 13, 14. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. This is his indictment, the seventh and final indictment against them. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And listen to what they said. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Well, what's the value of following God? You gave us these commandments and, and sometimes we follow those commandments and we're not really seeing the fruit of that right now because we see injustice kind of being proclaimed and, and injustice kind of, you know, getting... Um, the good end of the stick, and, and we kind of keep on getting the bad end of the stick. And even when we confess that we've been wrong sometimes, we walk in mourning, that's what it means. We cover ourselves in sackcloth and ashes, which was what kind of the tradition of the day. What's the use of this, God? What is the use of following God? Now, you and I may really strike great displeasure of that. We might be so well, if I was there, I would have told them that. But haven't we all been there before in our Christian life? If you haven't, I can almost promise that one day you will. I'm a pretty firm believer that you follow God long enough and there's going to be that day. And hopefully it's just like a, a, a synapse, a second, a moment, an hour, a day, a week, hopefully not even a month, that you're going, is this all real? Is this just one big fairy tale? If you haven't been there before in your Christian life, I can almost promise you that you will. Because we are people in a fallen world and, and we have this fallenness, this old nature, and there's times that doubt's going to come. Some of it's going to become because we are logical thinkers. And sometimes when God doesn't logically do what we want, we're going, I thought if I did this, God would do that. So other times it's because we're emotional thinkers. We're going, okay, God, you did this, but I don't like that because it's really made my, me sad and, and I hate that this is happening in my life. Does that make sense? That because we are logical and emotional, even though one may lead us out, that both of those present a vulnerability, and that's why we need to have this thing called faith. That there's going to be times that it just doesn't add up, that we're going to say, okay, one plus one should equal two, and somehow God throws a curve in there, even though he's a, a, the father of all truth, and somehow God just does it differently than when, what we think God should do. And all of a sudden, crisis of faith crisis of belief comes into our lives. That's what was happening here for the Jewish people. They began to doubt God and they actually became accusatory toward God saying, God, you've changed. We haven't changed. You've changed. You used to be the God of justice. You're not the God of justice anymore. You're letting injustice just kind of go rampant. And all these accusations and this final seventh indictment that God brings through the prophet Malachi to the Jewish people that... uh, Okay, you said it's vain to serve me. How have we said that? 
Actually, God, we, we kind of do things sometimes that's vain to serve you. We, we think that it's kind of pointless. Hey, here's the point, guys. This is the seventh time that God has brought charge, the seventh time that the Jewish people have denied the charges, and that's the reality of a problem. When the creation begins to bring accusation against the creator, do you think there's a problem? Okay, how many parents do we have here? You're a parent or a grandparent. When the creation brings question to the creators, is there a problem? Sometimes it can be done in quite innocence because it's ignorance. Why? Remember the why stages? You're going to have so many fun years. (laughs) Why, Mom? Why? 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 But sometimes it's disobedience and rebellion. Why not? And it's the head, I mean, the eyes, the tone, the face, everything. You know, it's not asking why out of, we just want to know, why is grass green and the sky blue? You know, those are legit. Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to share my toys with my sister? You know, or whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden, the created begins to question the creators. Even on our small scale of imperfect people, we see that there's a problem with that. Now let's take it back to the creator God, the one and only holy God. And now his creation begins to accuse him that he's not doing things right. Is there a problem? There's a huge problem in that. And that's where we, that's the nature of sin. Was that not the nature of the very first sin? God said you can eat from any tree, any tree at all except for this one. And yet in, within the heart of Adam and Eve was the spirit of freedom and independence and self-dependence and, and we will do what we want. And so they eat of that tree and they rebel against God. They sin and, and, and the world falls, what we call the fall. This is a timeless truth. It's a lasting truth that we see in the Old Testament. God creates man, and he creates him with or without sin. Without sin. He's created perfectly, but he's created fallibly perfect. That is, the ability to make a choice. I can be obedient, or I can be disobedient. But he's created perfectly. There is no sin. And then we begin to see that man chooses not to be under God's authority. That's basically what happened there in the Garden of Eden. God says, okay, under my authority, you can eat from every tree, but you can't eat from this tree. I said, but we kind of want to eat from that tree. And in that disobedience, in that claim for their own freedom, for their own way of thinking, it's what we call sin. And this is the problem that then leads to the second reality. With sin comes the reality of a judgment. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Or if it was the Hebrew Bible, it would be 3, what, 17? It would be the next verse. They, they just didn't have a, a chapter 4. But in our Bibles, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. Stubble is, uh, uh, if, if you uh, went out into a wheat uh, a farm that had wheat and crops on it, and you cut it down. Stubble could be that little bit that's remaining in the ground, and it can also be the outer shell of wheat, that kind of just that part that just kind of comes off. It burns almost instantly. It just burns up. And he said, 
Behold, a day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and evildoers, these people will be like the stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now he starts off with this word, behold. Behold in the Hebrew, this particular word, means to, to shout for attention. If somebody yelled fire, it would be because they want to get your attention. Behold, there's a fire. And you do it because you want safety and you want to be able to exit and you want to get everybody's attention so that if everybody's talking, they'd be quiet because there's something really important to say. This is the word that's used here. He says, behold, what I'm about to say is really, really, really important. You need to hear this. And what is this word? That there's a day coming, this day of judgment. And what is the nature of this judgment? He calls it a consuming fire. Now, if you've been with us through the Malachi series, you remember that just a couple of chapters ago, he talked about a fire. What kind of fire was that? A refiner's fire. And that fire, even though we said it could get really hot and it could be very painful, what was the purpose of that? To refine, to, to make bring maturity. And that sometimes God in his wisdom allows difficulty in our lives. Sometimes he may even cause difficulty in our lives. Not so that he can punish us, but so that we can grow mature, that we can understand that we're very susceptible to to all kinds of different things here and and that our only safety is with him. So there's times that God actually allows that. That's the refiner's fire. This is a consuming fire. Notice how it says that it will leave no branch or what? Anybody been to Gatlinburg lately? You know, there's a fire just, what, a year and a half, a year ago, a year and a half ago? wasn't too long ago. You go up to Gatlinburg now, you start seeing that where there's some seedlings and there's some things that used to be scorched to earth, but yet there was a root. And over time, with some rain and different things, what has happened to those roots? They've started to grow. And it's, it's actually, some of our, you know, some forestry people would say there, there's actually some really good wisdom of burning off some land and letting it kind of come back that it comes back strong and vibrant. That's not what's happening here. Because it just didn't get the tree. What did it get? The root. Why is he saying it that way? He wants us to know that there's a finality to this. To put it in terms that we can really grasp, there is no hope past this point. There's a judgment day coming that for those that are in this consuming fire, there is not a further hope. This is the consistent message of the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is not hate speech. This is not, well, man, he was wound up this morning. This is the consistent message of the Bible. Three realities. There's a problem. And with this problem, there's coming a day when there will be judgment. Now, I grew up in a church, guys, where I heard pretty much that every week. That, that was the consistent message. No matter what, they, they could turn to anywhere in the Bible, and that's kind of what came out. Now, we're just preaching what the Word says here, but God does not shy away. In a world that wants to deny kind of the uncomfortable things of God, hell, could there really be a place of judgment where, where there is no hope? A reality of an internal judgment? I mean, about three or four years ago, a famous pastor kind of went, let me use a real theological word, bonkers, 
and his theology and says, okay, in the end, love wins. But yeah, maybe people go to hell for a while, but in the end, God's going to look and say, oh, come on. Now, for the logic-minded people, we're going, no, okay, if the Bible says that there's a hell and it's, there's no root, there's no further hope, we can kind of go. But even the logical people, is there a part of you that emotionally goes, you know, I wish we had a third chance or a tenth chance or a thousandth chance. And the truth is, as long as we're breathing, God's grace is available to us, guys, and we do have. All of us here promise you, whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, all of us are the recipients of so many chances that you would have already lost count in God's pursuit of you. But is this the meanness of God or the kindness of God that says, okay, one day there is a day coming and it's going to be a judgment day and it really is, it's, it's a final day. And after that, there's going to be just a separation into to this and to this and there's no middle ground. And, and with this, this destruction, this consuming fire, then, then it's over. And there is no further hope. I would say that that's the kindness of God. I mean, how, how could a place like hell, how could you know, a consuming fire where there is no further help, eternal you know, separation from the Holy God, how can that be kind? That he tells us now? That he loves them enough to tell us now? I mean, can you imagine going and standing before a holy God one day and you're accountable for all your sins and that's the first you've ever heard of it? Well, my preacher never talked about this final judgment. He talked about that you were loving God, so God, are you going to love me right on into heaven now? He's a kind God. But he's a God of truth. He's a holy God. And this judgment that we read of here, while emotionally we may not like it, even logically we're going, you know, man, I kind of struggle with that just a little bit. Here's the truth of God, and it's the reality of the Old Testament, and guys, it's the reality of the New Testament. This is the reality of what God has said. We have a problem. It's our sin, our rebellion, our self-dependence, self-reliance as creatures often going against the one who has created us. And this sin brings about a judgment. But in this passage, we do see the realities of the problem and we see a judgment, but we also see some good news. Look at Malachi 4.2. What's the first word? Cherry Grant, one of our favorite words, isn't it? But God. (laughs) But here's the reality. Here's what we deserve. But here's what God has done. Look at Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like cows from the stall. Here we see a third reality. The reality, there's a problem. The reality, there, there will be a judgment. The reality that God has presented a solution. What is the solution? We begin to see it here in chapter 4, verse 2. Some of you, depending on the translation that you have, will have a capital S there where it says son, and some of you will not. depends on how the... Uh, people that were translating that decided to handle that word. But this is a reference to Jesus Christ coming. 
Okay, So whether it's the little S or the big S, depending on what you have, most scholars are going to agree that this is the promise that while there is a problem of sin and there's a judgment coming, that God has brought a solution, and the solution is Jesus Christ, His perfect Son. So whether it's a direct or an indirect, very much what we begin to see here is this description that Christ is going to come in the New Testament. Remember when the Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world? So that this light is going to come and shine in darkness. I could give you scripture after scripture after scripture that would kind of back up this, this son of righteousness, this S-U-N and not just the S-O-N. It's kind of a play on words a little bit, but, but this son has great meaning that this light is going to come. And think about when there's the darkness of light. Have you ever been afraid of the dark? And you're, it's kind of nighttime and the unknown. And then what happens in the morning, hopefully? The sun rises and brings light to the darkness. There's a little bit of hope. It's not going to be dark anymore. This is the promise of the Savior. But I love how, remember Zechariah in the, in the New Testament? God gives him a vision about John the Baptist. How he's going to, John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner of Christ. And as Christ comes, the Savior comes, that there's going to be one that comes before him that's going to kind of pave the way. And he's going to have a message. And that message is one of repentance, to turn away from themselves and to turn back to God. We just saw that last week in this great promise of God, return to me. And what did God say? I'll return to you. We've seen that throughout this story of Malachi. God always precedes all these indictments with an opportunity for them to repent and come back to God. But listen in Luke chapter 1, verse 76 through 79. Now, some of you are going, 76 verses? I didn't even know there were 76 verses. Luke chapter 1, this prophecy, this vision that Zechariah has about John the Baptist that's going to come as the forerunner to announce that a Savior is coming. Verse 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Who's that verse talking about? John the Baptist. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Here's your message. You're going to give them knowledge of repenting and coming back. And, and the, the words of salvation. This is the part I love. Verse 78, 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, and give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Is that amazing? This vision that he gives to Zechariah. Hey, John the Baptist is going to come and he's going to have this message. And he's going to give this message about this one who's coming, this sun that's going to rise and bring light to the darkness. What an amazing, beautiful picture of our Savior. Folks, do you see the realities here, these three realities? The reality of the problem, our sin. The reality of a judgment that's coming, but also that God has a solution. Now, Malachi has already described the, the end of this one that he calls the arrogant or the evildoer. He said judgment's going to come. It's going to be consuming fire and no root is left. In other words, there's no hope after that. But now look how he describes the righteous, the ones that follow after God. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But you who fear my name, 
the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And look at the picture. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I'm not a farmer. Don't play one on TV. But I can picture this. How many of you do have some farm experience? You got a little bit. Okay. What does he mean? Anybody want to share what you think this, this is a picture of? Yeah. You got this calf that's been born. And you put him in a little stall. And he's there, and, but he's looking on the outside, you know, but he's kind of, kind of, you know, no freedom. He's just in there. And all of a sudden you come by and you open up that stall. What does that calf do? Yeah. He doesn't just run, but he jumps. He just kind of, there's a joy. I, I was in bondage. I was kind of enslaved. I was contained. And now I've been set free. What a beautiful picture of the Christian, of those who have been bought with this finished work of Jesus Christ. That we jump for joy in this new freedom that we have, that we're not in the bondage of the old life. You see, even though most of Israel had taken God for granted and refused to acknowledge their sin, they all just brought these accusations back against God. There, there were a remnant of people that even within them said, no, we, we still want to follow God. Look what God says about them. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. I know we're kind of going back and forth, but to follow the description, we need to do that. Then those who feared the Lord, that's how they're described, these believers, spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Some would say that that's the Lamb's book of life. Some would say, no, that's not, it's just the, the book of their deeds. But what we get here is this picture of this God. Remember in Isaiah, your name is engraved where? On my hand, on the palm of my hand. Is it because God's forgetful? Milk, bread, eggs. I didn't need to remember. No. The, the illustration here, you are forever on the mind of holy God. You are forever on the mind of a holy God. If that doesn't get us, guys, emotionally and logically, if that doesn't motivate us, yes, I hear that, amen, Brantley. You are forever on the mind of a holy God. Here's the promise. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up, I, I make up my treasured possessions and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Here, here's the thing, guys. Let me make it really, really biblical and simple. God says there's two divisions of people. He calls them the wicked and the righteous. Here's our problem as humans trying to understand such parallels. We don't think we're so bad to be termed wicked, but many of us do not really think that we're good enough to be called righteous. Would you agree with that? We think wicked, okay, and there's some wicked people, Hitler and these people, and they're wicked. And then we think Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, and they're the righteous. And, and what we try to do is instead of two divisions, the wicked and the righteous, which is throughout the Bible, you'll find it in Psalms and all these other prophecies 
instead of just the stark difference of the wicked and the righteous, we want this kind of comfortable middle, this gray area where God has made it so defined. And we're going, but, but what about farmer dad? He gave away so much of his crops. He was a good guy. He was a good father. He was a good husband. And yet he never knew the Lord. This is where our emotions and even our logic can trip us up a little bit. Because we look at Farmer Ted, and by all outward appearances, he seems not only to be kind of good, but even better than us. And so Farmer Ted dies, and judgment comes to Farmer Ted. And what do we so desperately want to do with Father uh, Farmer Ted? God, sure, surely there's kind of this middle ground. Yeah, we can't really call him righteous because he didn't he, It's not that he just didn't go to church. He just never followed you. But he was a good man. And so we want this comfortable gray area in the middle. And most of us like that because we know that that's kind of where we fit in our minds, that we're not wicked in our own minds, but we also kind of, being honest with ourselves, don't really feel that we're the righteous. Malachi 3.18 then once more you shall see the distinction. See that word, the distinction? Between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. Two descriptions. God's terms, not ours. The wicked and the righteous. You don't hear a lot of sermons about the wicked and the righteous nowadays. But when it comes up in the text, we have to deal with it. We have to kind of go, okay, what does he mean? Let me ask you a question. How bad do you have to be to be considered wicked? I mean, do you have to be a Hitler? Is that a thousand sins? Is it ten thousand sins? Are you still safe with 100,000 sins, but 100,001, don't go there because you just moved into wicked land. I'm not trying to be funny. I really am not. But do you see how silly that argument is? That God says, okay, there's the wicked and there's the righteous. It's the only two designations that he gives here. He doesn't give us a, a middle where we can kind of be prayed into one and maybe swept over with another one. And that, well, God just says, you know, you were pretty close. You were at least better than your husband or your brother or your sister. So come on. This, we never find any of that in the Bible, folks. This is a figment of our own imagination so that we can get comfortable with kind of being in the middle. God uses two terms when it comes to judgment, the wicked and the righteous. Now let's define those. Who does he consider the wicked? In in this term, Cleve, yes. But all mankind... Romans 3, 9 and 10, this is what Paul said. Well, let me go back. You know, we were talking about how many, how many sins do you have to do to be considered wicked? How many, how good do you have to be to be considered righteous? So let me ask you this. How many sins did it take Adam and Eve to commit before they lost perfection and, and they became, you know, not perfect? One. 
for all the logical mind that people, that should make a little bit of sense, make those connections. Here's what Paul says. Romans 3, 9 and 10. What then? Are we Jews any better off? And, and I wish that we had time to read this whole, so that we read it in context. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. He's taking that from Psalms and other places in the Old Testament. Who are the wicked? Anybody who's ever sinned. So how many of us are wicked in our orientation? All of us. Don't stop yet, okay? Don't stop there. Who does God consider the righteous? Anyone who has perfectly followed God's commands and His ways. How many of us have done that? None. Romans 3.12. We read down a little bit. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even... So, so we're not making this righteous list over here, but we are making the wicked list, even though we wouldn't consider ourselves as wicked because we can think of a lot of people that are much worse than we are. But God doesn't have three divisions. He doesn't have wicked, righteous, and this comfortable middle. He has two, and we all belong here. There's a problem. There's a judgment. But God has a solution. And his name is Jesus Christ. And the righteous life that we could not live for ourselves, he lived for us. And as we place our faith that he has made redemption possible, that he has paid for our sins, as we place our faith totally on him, not our own righteousness, not our own goodness, but we say, I trust in Christ and his work alone, guess what we become? The righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he took all of our sins and placed it on Christ. He took all of his rightness, his righteousness, and imputed us, imputed that to us. This is our only hope. See, the bottom line is, if God really does have only two divisions, and this is only what we see in the Bible, we don't see any third division, then you either have to walk perfectly with God and we've all blown that, or we're on the wicked. But God. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, and we close with this. What's the first two words? But God. And if you have your Bible, circle those words. Put a heart around those words. Put somehow... (laughs) Because what Paul's doing there, he's explaining what we deserve, that we are the wicked, that we did sin against the holy God, self-defense, you know, reliance and rebellion against the creator. And he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. How can you respond to that? In any way, but man, thank you, Jesus. It's kind of an old-fashioned sermon. Man, you went back. I remembered when church was like that. Man, he'd get up there and preach judgment and fire every week. It's in the text, guys. Didn't wake up angry. Didn't say, you know, these people need a little kick in the backside this week. 
this burden of Malachi, this message that God gives him, comes to a conclusion. What's the concluding truth? There's a problem. There's a judgment. But there's a solution. Come to the conclusion of the Old Testament. What is the summary? What is the lasting truth? There's a problem. There's a judgment. There's a solution. And after 400 years of silence, we turn the page and we get to the Gospels and we get to the perfect timing of the coming of the Savior and the whole New Testament still talks about a judgment, but it talks about the Savior has come to bring us life. God's solution. Guys, I realize that everyone I've sitting here, whether you've been in church all your life, whether this is your first time in church, we don't see ourselves as wicked. We know plenty of people that are, you know, meaner than us and do worse things. We really don't have a problem with seeing ourselves not as righteous people because we know what goes on in the heart and the mind. And so we're going, you know, I know I'm not that righteous. But these are the only two declarations of God. You and I have no ability to do anything about our own righteousness and our own strength. We were born. That's my grandson. And he was born in sin with the nature of sin. And they've already seen it. (laughs) And they're going to hear it. Brantley, go do this. No. (laughs) But there's a solution for my grandson. There's a solution for you. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to buy you breakfast, lunch, dinner, all three. Because there's no more important message than we can preach in our churches than the realities of these three truths. It's one of those things, guys. Maybe we're not comfortable, especially the emotionally driven people, or even the logically driven people. We're going, you know, logically, don't you think that at least God's going to give a wink to this or that? No, just... This is the reality. And it would be terribly bad news had God not promised the good news of Jesus Christ. There would be no hope. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. Father, help us to grasp this because this is, we just don't talk like this a lot anymore, Father. Father, we don't use terms like wicked and righteous to describe people around us, Father. We think of wicked acts, and we think of righteous acts, maybe something that somebody does, but we don't really think of people that way. And yet, Father, you have characterized in this, uh, Father, this book of Malachi in the Old Testament, Father, and we can find it in the New Testament, Father, that there is this great division. And the only difference is not those who went to church, not those that really tried hard to be good, not even those who love their neighbors as themselves. Father, the only division we see here is those that put their faith in your solution, Jesus Christ. So Father, for, for us who have done that, we're desperately trying to place our total faith there, Father. Thank you that you've made a solution. 
Father, for others that are contemplating that, maybe even today, Father, they're, they're kind of throwing that around in their mind. Father, give them your truth. Father, for those who have rejected this whole thing and said that's just a, a, a fantasy. Father, I, I pray in your patience and your love for them that you would open their mind to the beauty of the gospel. So, Father, we love you. Thank you that you're a God that loves us enough to tell us the bad news so that we can see how good this good news really is. And now we just want to live it and and, and share it and proclaim it. And now, Father, we proclaim it as this closing song and prayer to you. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.